Welcome to Scars to Stars, where conversations and personal stories let us know we are not alone. In this show, you will meet authors and speakers from our books and events as they share vulnerable personal stories to spread hope and inspire you through adversities in your own life. The world is a difficult place. You will find like-minded people here with kind hearts and supportive souls. I am your host, Dina Brown Mitchell. I am a suicide survivor and the founder of the Realize Foundation. I am so glad you are here. Let's dig into this meaningful conversation. Today, I am talking with Daryl Rogers, and I'm going to let him tell, share his story with you, and then we're going to have some questions and conversation afterwards. So thank you, Daryl, for being here, and please introduce yourself and, and let everyone hear your story. Thank you, Dana. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to uh, share um, this story today with your with your audience and um, and also maybe there's some some really good things I think that people can take away from the story. There's so many different uh, life lessons in the story. Um, as you can see uh, behind me, there's some uh, football um, memorabilia. And so I raised two boys that um, both were um, high school athletes, track and football. Uh, One's in college now, still participating in football and track, both um, Eagle Scouts. And um, this uh, story starts out with a football story. And uh, I hope there's some football fans in the crowd. If you're not a football fan, hang in there because it's an interesting story either way. And um, and we'll get past that part and get into other parts of the story that'll be uh, really interesting, some twists and turns that are unexpected. So um, October the 15th, 2011, I was attending a high school football game in Virginia. It was a beautiful day for football, not a cloud in the sky, a perfectly manicured field, a little mountain range in the backdrop. Um, and the stands were packed full of fans because the home team was celebrating their homecoming. Well, my son Chase was the starting cornerback on the visiting team. Now, for those of you who don't know a lot about football, the cornerback's job is primarily to cover the wide receiver on his side of the field, make sure that he doesn't make a um, catch, and to uh, come up on run plays to his side of the field and make tackles. Chase would also play on special teams, kickoffs and punts, and he would play a little bit of wide receiver every now and then on offense. And so um, Chase was not very big for a football player, uh, even for a high school football player. He was 5'10", 150 pounds. It was his senior year of high school. Um, but what Chase lacked in size, he made up for with tenacity and hustle and just a, a love for the game and a strong desire to win. And this day was no different. Um, he played his heart out out there. He was just all over the field hustling, making plays, making tackles, um, breaking up passes. And he had played hard all day. And the lead had gone back and forth several times uh, between the two teams. It was a hard-fought game. And we came down to the end of the game. There's one minute left to play. And our we were behind by a touchdown, by seven points. So our team had – the ball, our offense had the ball inside of our own five-yard line. It was fourth down and long, like fourth and 20 or something like that. 
we needed a big play and we needed it now because if we didn't get a first down, our opponents would get the ball back and they would run out the clock and we would go home with a loss. And so um, all of a sudden I saw Chase running from the sideline into the offensive huddle. And I kind of scooted up to the edge of my seat because I knew what was about to happen. I knew what kind of a person Chase was. I knew what kind of a football player he was. And um, I was just anticipating this next play because I knew I had seen it before. I knew what he was capable of. And so the huddle broke. Chase lined up in the slot as a receiver. Our quarterback took the snap from the shotgun formation. He dropped back a few steps. And Chase used his speed to beat the defensive backs deep. Our quarterback threw him a perfect spiral. He told me later, Mr. Rogers, I just knew that I had overthrown Chase when I let that ball go, but he turned on another gear and he went to go get it. And I watched that ball, perfect spiral, ended up being about a 60-yard pass. I saw it coming in over his right shoulder. He reached his hands out. He grabbed that ball. He tucked it away, and he took a few more steps before he was brought down from behind. It gave us a first down. It put us deep in our opponent's territory. Two plays later, as time ran out, we scored the touchdown that would tie that game up. And we ended up winning in triple overtime at their homecoming game, our opponent's homecoming game. So it was a, a big uh, victory, a big win. Um, you know, it was just it had it, people on the edge of their seats the whole time. And so I went back down to the activity bus where the team was beginning to gather outside the activity bus there after the game. Um, Chase and his teammates and the coaches were all gathering there and celebrating and you know, I, I I got there a little bit before Chase did, and I could see him coming from in the distance. I was chatting with the coaches, and um, Chase was just grinning from ear to ear, and I gave him a big hug and told him how proud I was of him and how hard he had played and congratulated him on the, on the win. And his teammates and coaches, they all, you know, everybody eventually made their way onto the bus and went back to the school where Chase was at the time. And um, it was his, uh, like I said, it was his senior year. He had transferred to this school in the middle of his junior year. Um, it was a military school, a boarding school in Virginia. And that that school was a about a two-hour drive from our home in Cary, North Carolina. So I went back home to Cary. And the next day, I had a phone call from Chase's head coach. And he said, Mr. Rogers, you know, that was an amazing game Chase played I couldn't ask for anything more from any of my players. He just gave me everything he had all day long, played his heart out. And then when we needed him the most, he came in there and he made that catch at the end to put us in a position to be able to win the game. But there's one more thing I need to tell you. He said, Chase broke his foot in the first quarter of the game and didn't tell anybody. He had played the entire game on a broken foot. And that's just the type of player Chase was. He was quiet and easygoing, uh, funny, really weird sense of humor. But on the football field, um, he was a strong competitor, and he was there to win, and he loved the game. Um, He just um, was going to give everything he had every time he was on the field. And he was also a team player. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend this for (laughs) – for football players, I don't think it's good to play with an injury, but um, he did what he felt he had to do at that time to give his team a chance to win. And so he was out the rest of the season with a broken foot. He was on crutches. Um, he only played six games his senior year. Um, but despite that, he made first-team all-conference and honorable mention all-state. 
And there were a few college football scouts who were interested in Chase. Uh, one school um, offered him some money to some scholarship money to come to school there and play football for them. And he uh, accepted that offer. He went off to uh, to college. And unfortunately, it wasn't long after Chase arrived in co- at college that he began to um, associate with people who were abusing drugs and alcohol. Now, pretty soon, Chase was abusing drugs and alcohol. You know, we tend to become a lot like the people we associate with. Um, by early on in the second semester of his freshman year, Chase had dropped out of college. He came back home. He immediately gravitated to an even rougher crowd back home. And um, he just, um, he wouldn't follow the house rules. We, my wife and I, we had some basic, simple rules that, hey, you know, if you're going to be gone overnight, um, you have to communicate with us somehow. You have to let us know, give us some idea of where you are, when to expect you back and that sort of thing. But he would be gone sometimes for days at a time and, and not communicate with us. And we would try to call him, try to text, and he wouldn't respond. Uh, he wasn't looking for work. He wasn't, you know, thinking about, well, I, I encouraged him to go to a community college or to do something, you know, to improve his, his situation. But he wasn't really trying to do anything. And so one day he was gone for about three days. He showed up at the front door um, and I wouldn't let him in. And it was a really difficult thing to do. It was very it was heartbreaking to watch him uh right away with one of his friends in the car, not knowing if I would ever see him again or not. But I felt like to let him in at that point would be to continue to enable his self-destructive behavior. So I kept up with him on social media. He was losing weight rapidly. He was very pale looking. Uh, I would see pictures of him where he was glassy eyed and uh, some photos where he and a lot of his friends were holed up in a hotel room. You could tell they were all strung out on drugs. I became alarmed as a parent, um, just afraid that I was going to lose my son. And so we had an intervention for Chase in our home. And through that intervention, we were able to get Chase into treatment in South Florida. He was in treatment for about 30 days. And uh, after after treatment, he went to a halfway house. He bounced around to several different halfway houses there in South Florida and ended up spending a total of about nine months in Florida. He came back home and he was doing a lot better. I uh, felt like I had the old Chase back. His good friends, the friends that weren't uh, abusing drugs and that were a good influence, they felt the same way. They didn't know who that other person was, you know, when he was uh, on drugs. And so he came back home and, like I said, was um, he got a job. Um, he was going to IOP, intensive outpatient care, uh, two nights a week. Uh, it's kind of like group therapy. And, uh, you know, our his behavior was, like I said, more like the old Chase. Our relationship was, was better. And uh, everything was headed in a good direction, it seemed. But as the months went by, he began to relapse. And at the time, I didn't know anything about addiction, really. And I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I suspected that he was moving towards uh, drug use again. And one day he came to me and he said, Dad, you know, I'm headed in a bad direction again. I said, I know, Chase. And he said, I'm um, I'm hanging around a rough crowd. I don't know how to get away from these people. They're a bad influence. I know I need to get away from them, but I just don't know how except to move away. 
And he told me that he had taken a job transfer to Florida back to the area where he had been in treatment. He told me when he was planning to leave, I told my wife, Kim, Kim made Chase promise that he would uh, come by and have a meal with us before leaving for Florida. Well, the day came that he was supposed to come by and eat with us and he didn't show up. So it was getting later in the afternoon. Kim was beginning to get a little upset, thinking that Chase had left for Florida without even coming by to say goodbye. And so we all moved to the living room, uh, Kim and our youngest son, Justin, who was in the eighth grade at the time. And I, we were in the living room watching TV, just kind of surfing on our phones and talking a little bit. And I had a phone call from a friend of mine. Um, it was a nice day out. It was May the 29th, 2014. I didn't want to disturb Kim and Justin with my telephone conversation, so I took it outside. So I was standing out in the front lawn talking to my friend when a police cruiser pulled up to the curb in front of our house. I watched as the officer got out of his car, started around the front end of his car, and started up our driveway. I noticed he had a clipboard in his hand, and I told my friend that I was on the phone with, I need to go. Apparently, Chase is in some kind of trouble. And I went to meet the officer there in my driveway. And it was there that he told me, Mr. Rogers, there's been a bad wreck out on I-40 and your son Chase died at the scene. Um, as, as a parent, I can't uh, begin to explain what that feels like. Um, for anyone who's not experienced it, it's just... Um, it felt like all the energy kind of drained out of me. I went numb sort of all over and um, my brain began to play tricks on me. Like I thought maybe I misunderstood him. There was a long pause as I just silent pause as I just kind of stood there and thought about it. And then finally I asked him, he's dead. And I can remember he sort of dropped his head and shuffled his feet a little bit and, and said, yes, sir. And, um, he asked me if there was anyone inside that I would like for him to notify. And I said, well, my wife and my other son are right there in the living room, but uh, I feel like that's my job. Let me do that. And he asked me if he could go in with me for support. So I said, sure. And I, I went in through the front door of our home. I looked immediately to the right, to my right. And uh, there was my wife, Kim, sitting there in the recliner Justin was back in the corner on the sofa. I made eye contact with Kim. And a split second later, um, you know, this officer walks in the door behind me. And I could see the expression on my wife's face change to one of terror. Because she knew whatever I was about to say was not going to be good. And I just had to come out and tell her, honey, there's been a bad wreck and Chase is dead. And of course, you can imagine we all cried uh, for a long time. Uh, took a while to get settled down, and then we began to ask the officer questions about what had happened. He didn't have a lot of answers that day, but as the weeks went on, we began to get a few more answers. Um, it turns out that well, the rumor was that Chase, some of his friends uh, had there was a big going away party the night before, and they had all consumed. Uh, drugs and alcohol at the party and woke up late the next morning feeling hungover. And then this next part, um, uh, I can confirm they decided to go to the park. This was in the police report. They decided to go to the park, to a park near our home and smoke marijuana. Reportedly, they felt like the smoking the marijuana would help with their, uh, nausea from the, from the drugs and alcohol. 
And so they all smoked marijuana together there in the park. Chase um, gave his car keys to this young woman, um, 18 years old. Uh, it's a girl that's a very pretty girl, a girl that he had dated at one time. Um, they broke up, so we were kind of surprised they were together. But um, he let her drive his car. Uh, he got in the front passenger seat of his own car, and um, another young man got in the back seat. They left Kerry. They left the park. They they made one quick stop to grab something to eat, and they headed right out onto I-40 in a rush hour traffic. They didn't go but a couple of miles, and she lost control of Chase's car in a curb. Car spun out of control, left the road, struck a tree. By the time they hit the tree, they were running about 60 miles an hour on impact. And um, it wrapped around the tree. Um, it kind of flipped up on its side, and um, although it hit the the initial impact on the tree was on the opposite side of the car from where Chase was sitting. When the car rolled up, the tree just sort of came across um, his seat right where he was sitting. And uh, it was a, it was a head trauma that, that killed him. Um, he died uh, at the scene. We think probably on impact uh, or shortly thereafter. Um, it took firefighters about an hour to get all three of the victims out of the vehicle. Um, they had to be cut out. Um, once they got the, uh, the three of them out, they transported the two survivors to the hospital right away with serious injuries. And uh, over the next several weeks, they would recover from their injuries to the extent that they could come home to continue their recovery at home. However, seven months after the wreck and just a few weeks prior to what would have been her first court appearance, the young girl uh, that had the 18 year old uh, that had been driving Chase's car that day died after a fire broke out in her apartment. And the fire chief says that based on their investigation, his department's investigation, they believe that she poured gasoline all over the floor of her apartment, stood in the middle of it and ignited it. Now, there were um, two suicide notes that they found that sort of you know confirmed uh, what they thought had happened. And, um, you know, it's just, then uh, we ended up attending another funeral and it was sort of like, you know, the grieving all over again, even though, uh, yes, this was a girl that that um, drove it way at one time had been my father's car into this tree and, and you know, killed Chase. It was, a, it, you know, I'm sure that it was an, not intentional, you know, she, but she was, um, I feel like under the influence. I think it's pretty obvious because they had just uh, uh, used the marijuana. But, um, you know, um, there's just so many things, uh, so many lessons, like I said, that can come out of this story. is tragic, uh, but that's the story uh, in, in a nutshell. Thank you, Daryl. And I, again, I'm, I always get emotional when you tell your story, and I'm so sorry for your loss um, and your family. But I think that there's so many, like you said, there's so many lessons here for teens and parents. And, you know, even though we're here to really talk about suicide prevention. I think there's so many things that can lead to that and so many signs that we can um, acknowledge and address before it gets that far. And I think your story has so many of those things in it, you know, with from being a star football player and getting injured, which, you know, ruins your senior year and how do you cope with that to somebody who is responsible for someone's life that, couldn't cope with that 
in some way. And, and we don't, I don't know a lot about her, so I don't really know the details, but I just wonder if you might give some lessons learned to parents listening to this that maybe could help them understand how to approach their child if they're dealing with drugs or alcohol or hanging with a crowd that is getting them into something they've never been involved in before. Yeah. So um, before I start to tackle that, let me just mention that, um, you know, I started, I wrote a book about Chase and then I started doing uh, prevention speaking. Um, And while I was doing prevention speaking, at least in the early stages, I was still learning about addiction. I didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a very complex issue um, in so many different uh, angles. And, um, you know, as I went along, I began to, um, for the past three years, I've been uh, facilitating a peer support group for parents. It's a free group. It's called PAL. Uh, They have chapters all over. Uh, So, um, and right now, um, some of us are beginning to migrate back to in-person meetings, but there's still Zoom meetings out there. So you can look for a PAL group in your area. PAL is Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. Like I said, it's a completely volunteer thing that I do with them. Um, It's a nonprofit and um, it's a great resource for parents who are already dealing with a kid who is um, addicted, whether they're in the early stages and they realize they have a problem or it's further on. But you need that you need that peer support and you learn so much from each other. And then there are lessons that they bring in there. But in the course of uh you know, uh, doing that and, and just talking to other parents who've heard my story and reached out to me, um, I've learned a lot and I still have a lot more to learn. I'm still uh, studying on it um, every day. But, um, you know, the uh, the driver, you kind of mentioned that about the, you know, talking about the suicide part of piece of the, of the story. Um, her mother had shared with me that, you know, she had struggled some, um, with, with mental illness. And so it's not uncommon for there to be um, um, mental illness. It's certainly not in every case, but in a lot of, in, in quite a few cases, there's some mental illness associated with the substance abuse. And um, sometimes it's difficult to know. Most of the time it's difficult to know which came first. Was it the substance abuse that led to the mental illness or did was there an underlying mental illness? that led to the substance abuse. But um, uh, quite often um, I hear, you know, when I talk to parents, I hear about um, their child being uh, depressed. And so maybe they're on medication to deal with that. Um, and um, the, the, the hard part of that is if they've started self-medicating with the street drugs, then those drugs can interfere, you know, with, the, with what the uh, medication should be doing to help them. But um, uh, that's just, um, you know, that, that when, when you have both, when you have these co-occurring uh, situations like this with the, the drug abuse and the mental illness, it can be very difficult to diagnose and to, and to treat uh, from, from what I'm learning. So um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. I think there was a little bit more to your question I didn't quite cover, but. That's Okay. I think it's, it's, um, you know, some people watching may know my story, but there, there was definitely alcohol involved in, in my story and a failed attempt, um, because someone came home and found me, thank goodness. And so I'm still here. 
But I think that it it is, I think in, in my case and in probably many cases, is that people use drugs or alcohol to ease pain of depression or anxiety or PTSD or other other mental health issues. And like you said, it's hard to know what comes first. And other thing I've been reading a lot about lately is sleep and how sleep is so tied to depression um, specifically and how, you know, lack of sleep can cause it or depression can cause lack of sleep. And so you, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Like you don't know what, what, which one is causing the other. Um, so I think it's really important that we notice, you know, when, when something's changing with our kids, whether it's just changing, like something's changing in their friend circle, in their school or athletic situation, or if it's, you know, maybe, you know, they're not sleeping or they're staying up all night playing a video game because it's COVID and they don't have to go to school. And then that, that prolonged lack of sleep, you know, can turn into other things. And so I think it's really just about being aware of all of those things and then how to have a conversation about them, how to get them to talk to you. And I know my mom has told me many times that when I was younger, I just didn't talk about things and she would try to get me to and I wouldn't. And so it's not always easy, but I think that if we, if we can talk about it in a safe, you know, a safe way and respectful way, then we can at least all be aware and educated on what's going on and what, um, what we might need to do about it. Is it that we need to get help in some way, or we need to just communicate better, or there needs to be rules in place, like what, what you did with Chase, you know, or different things like that. I think it's all, it's all kind of tied into having that conversation and starting the, the open communication about what's going on to help them understand what path they might be going down and how there is help and there is other options. You touched on so many important things there. Um, one is that um, substance abuse quite often is a coping mechanism. And usually almost always is a coping mechanism for something else that's going on underneath. And uh, sometimes it can be difficult to identify what that thing is because we all tend to, um, we see the world through our own lens. So what I think might not, uh, you know, what might upset one person might not be upsetting to me, um, but it might really impact somebody else. The way they internalize things may be different um, and it may cause them stress or anxiety and dealing with things. They, um, I see a lot of self-esteem issues. I think it's very common among teenagers are struggling with trying to figure out who they are and where their place is in society. And, um, and that was a big part of what Chase was going through. Um, another, another, uh, commonality is the ADHD diagnosis. I see that in probably 90% of the parents that I talk to that have a, a, a kid who has an addiction issue. And so, you know, I mean, ADHD is a, is a challenging thing to cope with. Um, and then the communication skills you were talking about, those can be so important and not only dealing with an addicted child, but dealing with an ADHD child. And I think parents who um, 
I've just talked to some parents recently who are in the middle of that, and it can be exhausting, especially when you have other kids, when you have a kid who's ADHD, because they're so impulsive. And um, sometimes they, a lot of times they do things without thinking. Um, they Their motor never shuts off sometimes. It just keeps going. And that's part of what makes them really unique and really neat kids but at the same time, it can just wear on you as a parent. Um, and um, I think it's really important for parents to understand with those types of um, children that no matter punishment doesn't always you know, get you the desired result that sometimes you have to um, try to get really creative in how to the, the child to uh, understand. Um, and then some things you just have to kind of let go depending on the nature of it. But um, uh, yeah, communication is absolutely key. And um, and there's all types of communication, right? There's the verbal and the nonverbal and how you approach someone um, with who's struggling with addiction is, is so important because uh, you can beg them, you can yell at them, you can, you know, use all these types of really manipulation techniques, which we all tend to default to. It doesn't work. Um, so um, I'm reading a book right now called Beyond Addiction. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not endorsing their methods. I'm just saying that there are a lot of good things, I believe, in that book that, that you can pull out no matter where you are in the process that can help you with your communication skills with your child, particularly if you have an addicted child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for, for all of that. All, all good information. Um, the one thing I want to I want to say real quick is that you know part of part of my story is the fact that for 23 years I never said a word about what happened in my life, and I think that a big part of that is because I didn't feel like it was okay to talk about. I didn't feel like there were people who were open to having that conversation. I also didn't see a lot. You know that was before like cell phones and stuff. And you didn't see a lot of ways to ask for help in a private way other than going to the doctor. You know, there, there was no, um, back then people just thought, well, if you have a mental health issue, then you must need to be in an insane asylum or something. And it's like, that's, that's not true. Right. So many people that still see it that way because they don't understand what it feels like to be depressed or to be anxious or have ADHD or PTSD or any of the others. It's the whole purpose of us having these conversations is for people to understand through stories what people are going through so they can they can have a little more empathy that mental health is not just somebody being crazy. Like it is really something wrong in our brain and it makes us do weird things and, and sometimes bad things and it makes us not think we matter. And so the whole point of us having these conversations and telling stories is to make people more comfortable about talking about it and how to approach their loved one in a way that is, you know, non-threatening because if it's threatening in any way or accusatory, they're going to run the other way and do more bad things. If we can make them feel like they're safe and we care and we just want to understand that, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to fix every problem, 
but it means that you might be able to have a conversation that will get to some things that might could fix the problem. So that is my whole mission with all of these conversations. And I hope that, um, you know, there's so many avenues people can take to get to a bad place, you know, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or just social anxiety or social media or, you know, all, you know, abuse, people who have suffered abuse and they, they're ashamed to talk about it. So all of those things matter and, and every person matters. And if you are a teen that is struggling with any of that, you need to find somebody that you can talk to. And it, it may or may not be your parents. It might be, you know, sending me a, an email through our website. I don't know. Whatever it is, you need to find someone that you can talk to that can can help you see that you matter in these these drugs or whatever it is in your life that's bad influence is not, you know, is not reality. It doesn't have to be reality forever. It's just the situation at the time and it can change. Um, I think that's so important, um, you know, to to reduce the stigma to the extent that we can so that people will, um, you know, feel comfortable about reaching out and talking to other people, you know, when it comes to the mental health issues and also when it comes to the substance abuse issues or anything else that's maybe causing you know, um, the substance abuse or the underlying issues like you brought up. Uh, whether it's abuse of some type or, um, you know, any number of things. Uh, sometimes kids have a really tough time with parents going through a separation or um, it could just be, like I said, a number of things. And um, then I think on the other side of the equation is the parents. I think that the parents a lot of times are very, they have a lot of shame involved with uh, when, you know, oh, my child's addicted. I don't want anybody to know my child has a drug problem. I don't know want anybody in my child has a mental health problem, but you need to find somebody to talk to, whether it's a, um, a therapist, finding a good therapist that fits your needs or, you know, uh, finding a support group somewhere. But you need to find somebody to talk to because I, there is power in in talking about it and getting it out. Um, when you bottle all, the, all of that up inside, it's just um, it's not healthy. Yeah, it's it's true. Well, I think, um, would you, Daryl, tell everybody how to find you if there's parents out there who have children that are dealing with addiction and maybe they can follow you or connect with you somehow? Um, you can go to my website. It's uh, renewedhopecoach.com. And um, so I started a, um, a coaching business. It's called uh, Family Recovery Coaching. And... What family recovery coaching is just where, well, it's usually working with the whole family. In my case, I'm specializing with the parents, especially uh, specializing in, in working with the parents um, who have addicted children. And, uh, you know, some of the issues that parents have are uh, once they have a child who's addicted, um, there's a lot of times there's codependency issues. We all tend to think as parents, you know, um, you have a child who's especially in the early stages, child who's uh, struggling with addiction, either we think, oh, well, they're the one with the problem. Well, they might be, but it takes a family solution uh, to fix that problem. And that means changing the way you communicate and things like that. So 
and letting go of some of the fear that's controlling you, things of that nature. Um, and so it's, um, you know, a lot of it is about, as a parent, is about controlling your, your own emotions um, um, to be able to deal with your child effectively. That's, that is very good advice. I think it's, you know, every, every situation is different. Every family is different. And sometimes it's hard to get to the, the core of what's going on. But it's so important because, you know, this, this past 18 months with the pandemic and, and stay-at-home orders and the no school, the teen suicide rates have skyrocketed. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about that or publish it. But we, we really need to address it as a society. And in my opinion, the best way to do it is with education and awareness and, and talking about it. And so, again, that's why we're here. And I hope that if, if there are people out there that need help, they'll reach out to one of us and, and ask for resources or to put them in touch with whoever they need. Um, so we can, we can save lives and we can help these teenagers understand they, they do matter and they have a, a huge full life in ha- ahead of them. And so that's my, my goal. And I just thank you, Daryl, so much for being here and sharing your story and your wisdom with us. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, I appreciate, and like I said, I appreciate the opportunity. And um, um, I've always enjoyed working with young people. I've, I've um, you know, I ran a camp for five years uh, for boys ages eight to fifteen, and so uh, it's always been part of, of um, one of the things that um, I get passionate about is uh, you know trying to give them the information they need to be successful in life, and you know. Um, there's one other thing I'd like to say really quick that you made me think of that I meant to mention earlier is that, um, you know, uh, when speaking about the, the whole shame and the, all the stigma that goes along with, with the mental health issues and the, and the addiction, a lot of times parents feel shame or they feel like, what did I do to cause this? And um, there's an organization called Al-Anon. Al-Anon uh, is another peer support group. I've never been to an Al-Anon meeting, but I've talked to a lot of people who have. And um, they have this saying, the three C's are, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. Um, I, I like to add a fourth C. <laughs> and it's like, if you don't change some things, you can contribute to the problem. So that's where I think parents need to uh, need to understand that, look, um, this is not your fault. And even if you did something wrong in your parenting, none of us are perfect parents. Trust me, I did. I made a lot of mistakes along the way. And um, that's, you know, I want to help parents uh, avoid making some of those same mistakes I made. So um, uh, just don't beat yourself up over any mistakes that you've made in the past. It's not your fault. You did the best you could with the information that you had. Don't let that um, get in your way of getting the information that you need and getting out there and, um, you know, talking about it to the right people who are, who can give you some feedback and then taking the action to make the changes that you need to. Yeah, that's that's so important. And then we can add a fifth C for conversation. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Or communication. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that the important thing is that you know, we're aware of what's going on because for so much of my life, you know, 
when someone would die by suicide, nobody would talk about it. Nobody would say that's what it was. It wouldn't be open about it. And it's, it's getting a little better, but we still have a long way to go. And, and we don't, we can't fix what we don't know. And so we have to, we have to be aware of what's, what's happening in our world and what's happening to our loved ones and how we can change it. And I think, you know, in my opinion, social media has such a huge part in this because, you know, kids younger and younger and younger on social media. And even as adults, you know, we're looking at social media, like comparing ourselves to people and saying, well, how can they do that? I could never do that. I could never look that good or have that or whatever it is. And it just exacerbates the people who are already depressed and anxious about whatever's going on in their life. And so it makes them feel even worse. And my, my, feeling is also that the people who look perfect on social media are probably some of the most depressed and unhappy people in our world. And so how can we, you know, remedy this situation somehow? And to me, it's like being more honest and authentic and transparent ourselves will in turn get other people to feel like it's okay to do that. And that's, that's basically what changed my life last year is that, you know, I, I had had a 30 year career and I owned a business for the last 10. And when COVID happened, I pretty much lost everything. And I had to face a lot of things from my past to process that I had never really looked at because I was just running 24 seven with work. And so it's that, that moment, you know, in 2020, when I decided that I was going to go public with my story and I was going to start this foundation. And that was really hard for me after being silent for two decades or more. And so, you know, anybody can ask for help and decide to be your authentic self. And I think the people who have done that, it is freeing. It is healing. It To talk about what is going on with you just in itself makes you feel better because you get it off your chest and it's not you're not holding it in like all the stress that can just cause disease and all kinds of things in your body. So I think if, if you don't feel comfortable talking to your child or your parents or whoever it is, find somebody to talk to that you are comfortable with and it will get easier and easier. I promise. Um, so with that being said, I might ask if you have any more comments and then we can, I can tell everybody where to find our website. Okay. Um, yeah, just uh, one last thing. When you were talking there about the about the depression, um, it made me think of a comedian, a young comedian that I've run across um, on social media a little bit. Um, and social media is a wonderful tool that you can do so many great things with. But you know, like any tool, it has its uh, pitfalls. But um, I was just thinking about this guy. Don't there's sometimes he gets a little uh, crass or whatever, you know, but. Um, he is funny, and his name is uh, Theo Vaughn. And uh, not too long ago, I was so surprised when he just came out and started talking about some medication that he's used to cope with his depression. And I'm thinking, how is somebody this funny, you know, who's a comedian, how is he depressed? You know, every time I listen to him talk, I laugh. And uh, it just, um, you know, I think, I think it's good that he's uh, opening up and talking about it. And I wish more people would do the same Um is you know just like you said the uh, building the awareness is is so important. 
Yes, that's true. And I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because depression is pretty it's pretty high percentage of comedians who deal with depression and anxiety. So it's you know, it's like you think about Robin Williams and he spent his whole life making other people laugh and he was, you know, had these demons and and he, you know, eventually lost them. But I think it's the people who never show that they're not happy or strong are the people that probably need need the support the most and it's not necessarily help or there's nothing wrong with you it's just that you need to be able to talk about what's going on because holding it in just makes it, it 10 times worse Absolutely. take yeah. it from me <laughs> um, yeah so thank you all for being here thank you daryl so much and I hope that all of you listening to this, whether it's now or later, that you will reach out to those close to you and you will have this conversation. Let you, let them know you're there. Even if you just listen, you don't have to say anything. If you don't know what to say, you just have to let them know that you're there and you will listen and you will support them however they need you to. I'm so happy you joined us for this conversation. My wish is that you found comfort and hope in your own unique situation. If you resonated with our message, please head over to therealizedfoundation.org where you can apply to write your own story in one of our books. You can also download our 60 Ideas for Self-Care on the resources page. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, you are not alone, you are worthy, and you are enough.